Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The CIA's director meets with Mossad and Qatar's prime minister to discuss a new hostage deal. Florida's GOP suspends Chair Christian Ziegler. Hong Kong democracy activist Jimmy Lai's trial begins. North Korea resumes missile launches. Nikki Haley makes gains in New Hampshire. Trump says immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. War reaches Sudan's second largest city. Polish farmers continue blockading a Ukrainian border. Northeastern Australia is ravaged by floods. A report finds that the UK releases 80% of detained immigrants. And US homelessness hits a record high. Our top story, the CIA's director meets the Mossad chief and the Qatari prime minister to discuss a new hostage deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, Reuters, BBC News, CNN, The Times of Israel, and NBC. CIA Director William Burns traveled to Poland on Monday to meet with the director of Israel's Mossad Intelligence Service, David Barnea, and Qatari Prime Minister Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Altani in an attempt to formulate a new hostage release deal between Israel and Hamas. Barnea and Altani already met on Friday to discuss the possibility of a new deal. The talks come as the Israel War Cabinet comes under increased pressure to release the hostages after the Israeli military admitted on Friday to killing three hostages reportedly holding up a white flag. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin arrived in Israel on Monday to discuss Israel's eventual end to the current phase of the war in Gaza and its transition to a more limited, focused conflict. Austin met with Israeli Defense Minister Yav Gallant and is expected to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Austin, who has become increasingly vocal in his criticisms of Israel's war strategy, has warned that Israel's current bombardment of the Strip and high civilian casualties risks radicalizing Gaza's population. While the U.S. pushes for a new phase of the war and for another hostage deal, European countries have also begun to put added pressure on Israel to agree to a ceasefire. On Sunday, French Foreign Minister Catherine Kalana traveled to Israel, saying in a statement that she would push for a truce that should lead to a lasting ceasefire with the aim of releasing all hostages and delivering aid to Gaza. The UK and Germany also called for a sustainable ceasefire, though they did not say it must be immediate. In Gaza, aid has entered the territory via the Karem Shalom crossing with Israel for the first time since October 7th, when Hamas launched its deadly surprise attack into southern Israel. The Israeli Office for Coordination of Government Activities in the Territories said that a total of 201 aid trucks entered Gaza on Sunday, including 79 through Karem Shalom. Intense fighting has continued throughout the Strip since a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas ended last month, with Israeli ground movements being focused on urban centers in Khan Yunis in the south and Gaza City in the north. Pope Francis said on Sunday that Israeli attacks in Gaza were killing unarmed civilians, drawing attention to reports that an Israeli sniper on Saturday killed two Christian women inside the Holy Family Parish in Gaza, where Palestinian Christian families have been sheltering since the war began. Seven others were also reportedly wounded. The Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem also claimed that Israeli tank fire struck the convent of the Sisters of Mother Teresa. The Israeli military denied the claims. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left nearly 20,000 people in Gaza dead, 70% of whom it claims were women and children. 
The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. We began a round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative. It comes from CNN. Though, of course, Israel has a right to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities, it must wage this war in a humane way. The number of civilians being killed will only galvanize Palestinians against peace and push them into the arms of Hamas. A more thorough and surgical campaign is now needed to eliminate Hamas's leadership in Gaza, as Israel is losing global support. The pro-Israel narrative comes from the Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Though it seems that the Biden administration wants to pressure Israel into a ceasefire, Israel must push back against such short-sighted thinking. Israel is a sovereign country and has the right to defend itself from terrorism and pursue its own interests. Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated so that the group can never launch a terrorist attack like October 7th again. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to make the Gaza Strip unlivable. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. The Florida GOP demands a chairman resign amid a rape investigation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, NBC, Business Insider, CNN, The Hill, and USA Today. Florida's Republican Party on Sunday during an emergency meeting censured Chairman Christian Ziegler and demanded his resignation while police investigate a rape accusation against him. The Sarasota Police Department is investigating accusations from a woman who had previously engaged in a consensual relationship with Ziegler and his wife, Bridget Ziegler. The accuser claims that Ziegler raped her in early October. An unnamed woman told the police that after a scheduled meeting between her and the Ziegler's was canceled, Christian Ziegler showed up at her apartment and assaulted her. Christian Ziegler can be seen arriving at the woman's house on surveillance video but he claims their intercourse was consensual. He has not been charged with a crime. While Florida GOP leadership voted to remove him, it voted 39-0 to against conducting a special investigation into the allegations. Lee County GOP Chairman Michael Thompson confirmed Ziegler was censured, had his salary reduced to $1, and had reimbursement of his expenses revoked after the meeting. In addition, Bridget Ziegler, the co-founder of the conservative Moms for Liberty group, has been asked by the Sarasota County School Board to resign her position on that board. Thanks, Eric. We have some narratives on this story. The Republican spin comes from the Washington Examiner. Although former President Trump has yet to weigh in on Ziegler's future, it's probably best he step aside or be removed so he doesn't serve as a distraction in the crucial state of Florida. With pretty much every Republican heavyweight telling him to go, Ziegler should take the hint. Allegations this serious cannot be taken lightly, and his resignation is best for the party and the victim. And the Democratic narrative comes from New York Times. The hypocrisy of the Zieglers seemingly knows no bounds. Beyond the criminal charges, which should be at a minimum worth removal of Christian Ziegler from his post, their acknowledged interactions with this woman are coming to light at a time when Bridget Ziegler is actively pushing policies that are discriminatory against the LGBTQ community. If Republicans are hoping this wouldn't be a distraction, it's too late. You know what song comes to mind? It's, it's a Don Henley song that's just kind of like, it's like an earworm. I can't get it out of my head. Dirty Laundry? That's it. 
I was going to say Boys of Summer, but then oh, I was like, yeah. no, I don't know how that applies. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The Jimmy Lai trial begins in Hong Kong. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Vatican News, Global Times, South China Morning Post, Guardian, the UK government, and BBC News. Hong Kong media tycoon and democracy activist Jimmy Lai was taken before a court on Monday to stand trial on national security allegations. The 76-year-old has been in jail since December 2020. Lai, along with three others, has been charged with collusion with foreign forces and conspiracy to publish seditious publications. If convicted of the first charge, Lai could face life imprisonment. The latter charge could result in two years in jail. Due to the fact that the sedition case against Lai was brought outside the six-month window for legal prosecution following the offense, Lai's legal team argued in court that it should be dropped. Lai's arrest and trial are part of Hong Kong's crackdown on the opposition. A sizable crowd gathered outside the court on Monday, where officials had already put in place strong security measures to greet the creator of the now-defunct Apple Daily publication. The UK has said that Hong Kong's national security law, under which Lai is charged, is a clear breach of the Sino-British Joint Declaration that set the condition for the city's transfer to China. Beijing introduced the law in 2020 following pro-democracy protests. Like Lai, a PRC British dual citizen who was born in China and later moved to Hong Kong, over 250 people have been arrested under the law since then. Scott, thanks for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-China narrative. It comes from Global Times. More than a quarter century after Hong Kong returned to PRC control, the UK hasn't gotten over its colonial hangover. London is meddling in due process, and Jimmy Lai will face charges for documented seditious acts. If anything, the machinations by foreign powers to help Lai in the case only reinforce the charge of sedition against the media tycoon. And the anti-China narrative comes from the Wall Street Journal. All that Jimmy Lai has done is demand peaceful democratic elections in Hong Kong, and the draconian charges against him are China's way of saying, forget it, in response. What Beijing seems to have missed is the underlying test of natural justice and human rights that this case is about now. For Hong Kong to remain a credible global financial and business hub, the PRC must honor its agreements and uphold democratic principles. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance of China ending Hong Kong's special administrative region status by March of 2046. North Korea resumes missile launches as the U.S. and South Korea strengthen ties. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, ABC News, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and CNBC. North Korea reportedly fired off an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, on Monday into the waters off Japan near the island of Hokkaido, making its second missile launch over the past two days. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff estimates that it traveled some 1,000 kilometers, or 621 miles, before crashing into the East Sea with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida saying, based on the flight trajectory, that the launch appeared to be an ICBM with an estimated 14,000-kilometer or 9,300-miles range. South Korea signaled that the launch featured a solid-fueled weapon, a likely reference to the North's Hwasong-18 ICBM, whose built-in solid propellants make it more difficult to detect than liquid-fueled weapons. Kim Jong-un has previously called the Hwasong-18 his country's most powerful weapon within Pyongyang's nuclear forces. Despite firing its first ICBM since July on Monday, Pyongyang has launched a record number of weapons tests in 2023, including a short-range missile that flew about 570 kilometers or 354 miles before falling into the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan on Sunday. 
This comes as North Korea looks to ramp up its arsenal and military capabilities in the face of a growing alliance between the U.S. and South Korea, whose officials met on Friday in Washington to discuss ways to respond to a potential nuclear threat from the North, agreeing to wargame the use of nuclear weapons in military drills next summer. Following the launch of North Korea's first military reconnaissance satellite into space last month, the U.S. and South Korea have boosted the intensity of their joint military drills. Pyongyang has been banned from conducting ballistic missile launches under a related U.N. Security Council resolution. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-North Korean narrative from KCNA. Though Washington and its proxies in the Korean Peninsula have carried out threatening military exercises on North Korea's doorstep and alleged efforts to deter Pyongyang, they are quick to claim that any measures to develop any sort of defense weaponry from the North are a provocation. Pyongyang will continue its sovereign right to self-defense and will not be bullied by warmongering enemies. Follow that with an anti-North Korea narrative coming from Newsweek. North Korea continues to stoke global tensions and work towards igniting a war in the Pacific, as it continually defies UN mandates and actively seeks to create a missile that can reach the U.S. Led by its autocratic and dangerous leader, North Korea cannot be dismissed, and the U.S. must ramp up its exercises with its allies to deter a nuclear threat. Democracies around the world must be vigilant about deterring nuclear action. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 30% chance that North Korea will possess enough fissile material to make at least 100 warheads before 2024. Nikki Haley makes gains in New Hampshire but still trails Trump in a new poll. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Fox News, CBS, The New York Post, The Hill, and Market Watch. A new CBS YouGov poll released Sunday shows former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has gained ground in the New Hampshire Republican primary polls against frontrunner Donald Trump, now standing at 29%. Haley is 15 points behind the former president. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis received 11%, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie took 10%. The polling, which also shows entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at 5% and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson at 1%, comes a little more than a month before the January 23rd New Hampshire primary, which will take place just eight days after the nation's first primary caucus in Iowa. This poll, which surveyed 855 voters with a margin of error of plus or minus 5.5%, also gave Haley the highest likability rating in New Hampshire with 55% compared to 37% for DeSantis and 36% for both Trump and Ramaswamy. Haley was described as reasonable by 51% of voters, compared to 37 and 36% for DeSantis and Trump, respectively. However, New Hampshire voters placed Trump at the top concerning who they thought was a strong leader and who they thought would beat Democratic President Joe Biden. For a strong leader, Trump received 55%, compared to DeSantis, 45% and Haley 41%. On who would beat the current president, Donald Trump received 51%, Haley 32%, and DeSantis 27%. Regarding Iowa, the CBS poll put Trump at 58%, DeSantis at 22%, and Haley at 13%. This coincides with the GOP national polling, according to Real Clear Politics, putting Trump ahead of his opponents with 61.9%, DeSantis with 20%, and Haley in third place with 15.8%. Meanwhile, a recent Fox News poll released numbers on potential general election matchups, with Haley defeating Biden by 6%, Trump winning by 4%, and DeSantis tying the incumbent president. Biden was narrowly leading all three of them as recently as August. The Fox poll showed 14% of Biden voters switching to Haley, 
and 5% switching to Trump. Our round of spins begins with an anti-Trump narrative coming from National Review. The polling in Iowa shows about half of Trump's supporters are still willing to change their minds. In fact, alongside Haley's rise in New Hampshire means if Trump underperforms in Iowa, Haley could gain momentum heading to the Granite State, where a win could launch her toward more success as the primary season continues. Pro-Trump narrative comes from human events. Take all the polls you want. Trump already has this nomination in the bag. Neoconservatives like Haley have failed time and again to overtake Trump, but national polls show them losing percentage points to the GOP frontrunner. If all these so-called conservatives truly wanted their party to win, they would acknowledge Trump's insurmountable lead and put their weight behind him as the nominee. There's a 4% chance that Haley will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. That's according to a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. Trump makes controversial immigration comments at a rally. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Politico, Business Insider, Reuters, and Forbes. Speaking at a rally Saturday in Durham, New Hampshire, former President Donald Trump claimed illegal immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of America while discussing U.S. border security. Trump also said the immigrants coming to the U.S. had, quote, poisoned mental institutions and prisons all over the world in not just three or four countries that we think about, but rather from all over the world. In the 2022 fiscal year, there were approximately 2.4 million migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border with Mexico, an increase from 1.7 million the year prior. The former president has used the phrase, quote, poisoning the blood before during an interview with the National Pulse in September. A Trump campaign spokesman described reactions to Trump's language as, quote, nonsensical in October. During the same rally, Trump said, quote, even Vladimir Putin believed President Joe Biden has organized a, quote, politically motivated prosecution of his political rival, referring to several criminal cases brought against Trump. Thanks, Eric. We have an anti-Trump narrative on this story from The Washington Post. Whether it's his dehumanizing comments about immigrants or his denigration of democratic institutions, Trump's goal is to get his followers to share his view of democracy as illegitimate in an attempt to distract from his legal troubles and be empowered to act as an authoritarian should he return to the White House. This is what Democrats and pro-democracy Republicans are fighting against while he falsely accuses them of being anti-democratic. Trump's rhetoric becomes more dangerous with each passing rally. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Breitbart. We shouldn't be focusing on Trump's rhetoric because criticizing how he describes a problem doesn't mean there's a major issue. The border is broken, and an overwhelming majority of Americans agree that something has to be done to fix it. But Democrats and the Biden administration have failed on this matter, so they're trying to distract the public while Trump is offering up solutions for when he returns to the White House. We have Narrative C from Newsweek. Despite their stark rhetorical differences, the GOP and the Biden administration are together set to enact the most sweeping set of restrictive immigration changes seen in 100 years. Overfocusing on either Trump's extreme rhetoric or Biden's softened statements ignores closely aligned policy realities that will impact the lives of millions. Finally, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 3% chance that the U.S. will deploy military forces in Mexico without the cooperation of the Mexican government before 2029. 
It reminds me of the opening. Uh, you've seen Scarface, right? The Al Pacino oh, yeah. movie. Uh-huh. In the beginning, I'm actually looking at the at the opening crawl right now. In May of 1980, Fidel Castro, in an effort to normalize relations with the Carter administration, opened the harbor at Mariel, Cuba, with the apparent intention of letting some of his people join their relatives in the United States. Within 72 hours, 3,000 boats were headed for Cuba. In the next few weeks, it became evident that Castro was forcing the boat owners to carry back with them not only relatives, but the dregs of his jail population. By the time that port was closed, 125 Marielitos had landed in Florida, and an estimated 25,000 had criminal records. So that's kind of what Trump is saying is happening, right? That's the that's Absolutely. He's saying that yeah. they're packing these things with these undesirables. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands flee as war reaches the second largest city in Sudan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Arab News, Middle East Eye, TRT World, the Sudan Tribune, and Voice of America. The war between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, reached the city of Wad Madani over the weekend. Wad Madani is the country's second largest city, opening a new front in a war that erupted in April. Thousands of displaced people were forced to flee as the RSF reportedly set up a base in the capital of Al Jazeera State, south of Khartoum. According to UN figures, more than 86,000 displaced people live in the city, with more than 270,000 of its 700,000 population relying on humanitarian aid. The state capital was attacked from various directions on Friday and Saturday, with Sudanese forces attempting to push back the paramilitary fighters. The RSF has also been seen advancing on both El Fasher the capital of North Darfur State in the west, and the town of Babanosa in the south of West Kordofan State. The East African body Intergovernmental Authority on Development urged an end to the clashes, saying it is extremely concerned by the resurgence of the conflict, while the U.S. Ambassador to Sudan, John Godfrey, called on the RSF to halt its regional advance and assault on Wad Madani, warning of a significant disruption of humanitarian assistance efforts. Meanwhile, the RSF reportedly withdrew from Wad Madani on Sunday as the Sudanese military continued conducting airstrikes against their positions and bases east of the city. Local organizations claimed that the military repelled the retreating RSF forces towards the town of Rafah, about 54 kilometers or 33 miles north of Wad Madani. Following eight months of war, which has led to 6.6 million people displaced in and outside of Sudan, the World Food Program warned last week of a looming hunger catastrophe in the East African country. Since the outbreak of the armed conflict between the Sudanese military and the RSF, all efforts to achieve a ceasefire have, so far, failed. Thank you, Scott. The first spin coming from Alba Waba. It's a pro-establishment narrative. The RSF attacks on Wad Madani underline that it is the rebels commanded by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo who continue to escalate the conflict while claiming to be fighting for the Sudanese people. The recent RSF attacks, which have forced thousands of refugees to flee again, undermine the ongoing U.S.-led peace talks and the hope for a negotiated end to the senseless conflict. The RSF must stop its offensive immediately and return to the negotiating table. However difficult the talks between both parties may be, the U.S. will not tire of standing up for the suffering people of Sudan. The establishment critical narrative comes from the New Arab. The Western-dominated international media landscape distorts reality when it unilaterally blames the RSF for the escalation of the terrible war in Sudan. The Sudanese army is also committing atrocities, while its leader and de facto head of state, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, repeatedly prevents a ceasefire and shows no ability to compromise. 
It is the Sudanese people who must pay the price for the deadlock and thirst for power of both sides. The international community must also put pressure on Al-Burhan to restore hope for lasting peace in the country. Middle East Monitor provides Narrative C. All too often, the war in Sudan, in which over 12,000 people have been killed, is portrayed as merely an internal conflict between two military rivals. However, as with many other international conflicts, there is a geopolitical component to this conflict that is being ignored. For example, the UAE is allegedly involved in shipping weapons to the RSF, and the Sudanese army also relies on weapons and money from abroad. It is also foreign interests that are preventing peace in the country and contributing to the suffering of the population. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that more than 10,000 people will die in the Sudan conflict in 2023. News coming from Poland as a Ukraine border blockade continues. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukrainska Pravda, Al Jazeera, Ukraine Forum, European Pravda, and Ukra News. As the dispute over Ukrainian grain continues to sour relations between Ukraine and Poland, Polish farmers and truck drivers continued their blockade of the country's border with Ukraine at Dora Husk on Monday. United Village, a Polish farmers association, said they joined the blockade due to the, quote, tragic situation on the Polish market caused by the uncontrolled influx of grain from Ukraine, the lack of prospects for improving the situation in the 2023 harvest, and the lack of systemic solutions to protect the domestic market. The issue erupted in September when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky publicly accused a number of countries of playing into Russia's hands by imposing unilateral blockades on Ukrainian grain imports. Then Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki told Zelensky, quote, never to insult Poles again. Later that month, Poland halted all weapons deliveries to Ukraine. The EU has since relaxed rules on Ukrainian grain imports into the bloc, prompting further anger from Polish grain producers and suppliers. As a result, a number of blockades on Poland's border with Ukraine began in early November. Last Monday, Wojciech Sawa, head of the Dorohusk municipality, ordered the dispersal of the blockade in his region, citing reasons of, quote, significant danger to property and blocking traffic. The participants were given 15 minutes to decide their next steps and Polish and Ukrainian officials soon confirmed that the blockade had been lifted. But later in the week, a regional court struck down Sawa's ban on the blockade. Judges ruled that his government had misrepresented the threat of greater property damage, adding that the blockade could legally resume from Monday. Thanks, Eric. Euro integration brings us Narrative A. With the new government now in power in Poland, that being of Donald Tusk and his coalition of four parties, relations between Ukraine and Poland will hopefully be restored to previous levels. Due to Tusk's closeness with the EU, the grain dispute should now be able to be resolved more swiftly. Notes from Poland.com has narrative B. While Poland remains a strong and close ally of Ukraine, Poland's support for the country cannot come at the expense of its own farmers and entrepreneurs. Poland is committing to working with Ukraine in order to find an optimal solution for both countries. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus predicting a 1% chance that Poland and Ukraine will settle the Perzewadu incident before 2024. I know you've been waiting for that one, Eric. I have been. Hope. Hundreds are evacuated as floods pound northeastern Australia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, The Straits Times, BBC News, The Independent, and ABC News of Australia. In the northeastern Australian state of Queensland, severe flooding closed off villages and forced disaster survivors to their rooftops, forcing hundreds of people to be evacuated, officials said on Monday. 
Ex-tropical cyclone Jasper has resulted in thousands of residents without power for days, stranded with washed-out roads. More rain is anticipated as the weather system slowly passes across the Cape York Peninsula to the west. Media clips showed wildlife officials capturing a 2.8-meter or 9-foot-long crocodile in a storm drain outside a gas station in Ingram, a town of around 5,000 people submerged under floodwaters. However, observations of crocodiles in North Queensland are more common in rural regions such as rivers, lagoons, and wetlands. Some areas have received a year's worth of rain due to Cyclone Jasper. The city of Cairns has seen more than 2 meters or 6.6 feet of rain. So far, there has not yet been any recorded deaths or missing persons. Monday saw a temporary closure of Cairns Airport due to floods, which also caused flights to be canceled or postponed. Part of the airport tarmac was submerged. Flood warnings are in effect for multiple river systems with residents being asked to avoid travel. All roads leading from the Tablelands region to the seaside are currently closed. Scott, thank you for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from SBS. 2023 will very likely go down as the warmest year on record. For every degree Celsius that the average world temperature rises, there can be an extra 7% of water vapor in the atmosphere, which is released as torrential downpours. Climate change has increased the likelihood of flooding and excessive rainfall. As the atmosphere gets warmer, extreme weather conditions like cyclones will intensify. Australia will need to work on adapting to increasingly extreme weather. But are state and local government agencies ready? And narrative B comes from the conversation. It's easy to dismiss extreme weather events, including cyclones, as a consequence of climate change. However, in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors and interrelated processes. More research is needed before establishing any direct causal link between the two. The nerds are saying that there's a 20% chance that there will be a five-year period with an average global temperature of greater than 3.6 degrees Celsius warmer than the 1861 to 1880 baseline before the year 2100. And that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. Four in five detained immigrants have been released and not deported. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Eastern Eye, and BBC News. According to an annual report from the UK's Independent Monitoring Board, almost 80% of migrants in detention centers last year were released but not deported. The 22% deportation last year was almost half the rate between 2015 and 2019, which was 44% during that time. The purpose of detention is to prepare individuals for deportation, and the Home Office is only tasked to detain migrants if there is a realistic chance of timely deportation. Many, however, are released due to successful legal challenges or health assessments. The cost of immigrant detention is 113 pounds, about 142 U.S. dollars, per person per night. The government has also faced criticism for holding people too long, including one detained for three years and five others for 180 days. However, the government has pledged to increase detention capacity as it prepares to restart its deportation to Rwanda program. The Rwanda plan, in which the UK paid the East African country 140 million pounds or 177 million US dollars in 2022 and an additional 100 million pounds or 126 million US dollars in 2023 to accept deported migrants, was originally rejected by the UN last year, claiming Rwanda was not a safe third country to send migrants to. However, Rwanda rejected the UN's claim, and UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak argued the plan would save taxpayers, quote, billions in the long run. 
While the European Council on Human Rights claims the Rwanda plan violates three other laws passed by parliament in the last three decades, Sunak's government is, quote, anticipated to send another 50 million pounds or 63 million U.S. dollars to Rwanda for the program in 2024. Thanks, Eric. The Guardian brings us the left narrative spin. The Sunak government should be given credit where credit is due regarding its attempt to tackle the backlog of asylum claims. However, as more and more asylum seekers go through the process to officially begin their new lives in Britain, they're quickly pushed out of temporary housing and into the nation's housing crisis with nowhere to go. Sunak's administration needs to allow more time for private charities to find sufficient accommodations for these new arrivals. Otherwise, they'll become another demographic data point on the country's homelessness map. The Telegraph has the right narrative. Rishi Sunak's obsession with combating illegal immigration is not only failing, but hiding the parallel issue of overwhelming legal immigration. As Britons struggle to find homes and health care for themselves and their children, the government has prioritized the legal immigration of foreigners like foreign students who can afford to pay the full price of university tuition. Tory voters have long demanded a slowdown to both illegal and legal immigration, but Sunak seems to care more about immigration status than the cascading effects of his policies. He needs to better align conservative values on this issue. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 12% chance that the Tories, led by Rishi Sunak, will form the first government after the next UK election. Our final story is a sad one as U.S. homelessness hits a record high. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, the Associated Press, National Review, CBS, The Hill, and The Wall Street Journal. According to a report released by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the number of Americans experiencing homelessness has risen by 12% since last year to the highest level on record. Approximately 653,000 people were homeless in January 2023, reflecting an increase of about 71,000 individuals in comparison to January 2022 statistics. Within the overall rise, homelessness among families with children had increased by 15.5%, among individuals by nearly 11%, and among veterans by 7.4%. Furthermore, some states witnessed the biggest increase in their homeless populations on record, including New York, 39%, Colorado, 39%, Massachusetts, 23%, Florida, 19%, and California, 6%. While the increase spans across all demographics, the number of homeless Asian and Asian Americans jumped 40%, marking the group's largest percentage increase. The rise in homelessness has primarily been attributed to surging rents, lack of affordable homes, and the end of COVID-era relief programs. Those were the facts. Our first spin is a democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. The U.S. homelessness crisis is getting worse post-COVID which has delivered a financial double whammy. However, the Biden administration is committed to helping vulnerable Americans weather the economic turmoil of the pandemic. The country is on course to prevent and end homelessness, as the government's long-term plan focuses on solutions to help prevent homelessness in the first place and to aid unhoused individuals to quickly put life on the streets behind them. And the Republican narrative comes from Newsweek. This is a manufactured problem. The rise in homelessness also stems from the growing number of migrants entering the expensive and ineffective homeless services system, which is ill-prepared to handle any unchecked influxes. It's time to call out the policies of President Biden, which focus on housing illegal migrants rather than homeless, impoverished Americans. The anti-American betrayal must end. The final nerd narrative of today's podcast, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, says... 
there's a 40% chance that the total number of people staying in New York City homeless shelters will exceed 100,000 for any day of 2023. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.